It is episode 27 of the Celtics Blog Podcast, the official podcast of CelticsBlog.com, where we have a boatload of content from Paul Pierce weekend. It was only right that as the Celtics gave Pierce the ceremony of a lifetime for his contributions over nearly 20 years with the Celtics, that the Celtics blog had to do our due diligence as well over there. A number of articles, a letter from Andrew Doxey, and many more Paul Pierce memories available at Celtics blog, as well as CLNS Media from the day that was. Sunday was unbelievable beside the game. And today on the Celtics blog podcast, we have two people who were in the building that night and two people who followed Paul Pierce his whole career covering the Celtics. We have from the Metro West Daily, Scott Sousa to lead off the show with memories of Pierce's career, the growth and the greatness that he displayed in green. And then Mike Petrelia gives us a sensational synopsis of the atmosphere that was in the garden because frankly... You weren't getting in the garden on Sunday. Those tickets were expensive, and it was packed, rightfully so, for a game that big, for a ceremony that big. And now 34 hangs in the Raptors, so now that Pierce has been immortalized in the garden, let's immortalize him on the Celtics Blog Podcast. With us first to lead this off is Scott Sousa. him when he was at Kansas I didn't pay ultra close attention but I obviously knew he was a was a was a great player um and then I remember when he came to uh to the Boston Celtics and it was obvious you know right from the very beginning you know that those were some those were some rough Celtics years when when Paul first came to the Celtics you know the Rick Pitino era uh they thought they were building something with, with you know Antoine Walker and then they got a couple of uh uh, they got obviously the draft choices. They had Chauncey Billups, they had Ron Mercer, but things, um, you know, they were coming off of the era right before that, in which you know they were tanking and you know, the the ML Car team. So there weren't a lot of Celtics fans in, in kind of the mid '90s. There was really, you know, Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker that kind of ramped back up. And and the first time that I really remember him, you know, really thinking that he was going to be, he had a chance to be the type of player that he was was when they made it back to the playoffs that first time under Jim O'Brien. And, and a lot of people still weren't paying attention to them that much uh, back then, I don't think. Uh, but that first series against Philadelphia, against Allen Iverson, you know, they hadn't been back to the playoffs in years. They wound up going to a game five. I think Paul Pierce had 48 points uh, in that game five. 
Um, that was the game after which I was actually talking to Antoine Walker about this a little bit on Saturday at, at the reception beforehand when Antoine Walker kind of proclaimed that uh, the Celtics had two stars and Paul was the 1A star and he was the 1B star. And that was the first time that Antoine had kind of given that ground because he had, I think, fashioned himself as the Celtics star uh, to that point. And, and um, you know, I asked him about that on Saturday, and he said kind of, well, you know, I had to realize what it was. And Paul Pierce was a better scorer than me already at that point in time and was going to be a better scorer than me. And um, I had to embrace that. And uh, uh, kind of history wrote from there in terms of getting to the, uh, the NBA Finals that year the uh, conference finals that year, I should say, the big comeback against the New Jersey Nets. I believe it was the next year when he hit the shot over Al Harrington and that when they upset uh, the Pacers in that first-round series, pretty much got Isaiah Thomas fired as, as Pacers coach there. And then, obviously, there was another lull, and then they came back for the championship. But I would really say, um, you know, I, I remember Paul Pierce from his early days with the Celtics, but really I thought that that 2002 Eastern Conference finalist team was his real coming-out party. What can you say about that Antoine Walker-Paul Pierce dynamic for a young kid like me? I feel like people my age don't really remember that because of how big Pierce's image blew up in that big three years. That could have been something, I feel like, the Walker-Pierce thing. And why, do you, why don't you think that ever did become something? It's interesting. Disney Ainge, actually, the year after they got to the Eastern Conference Finals, where Jim O'Brien was the coach, and, and Rick Pitino kind of built that up, and then he had gotten impatient. He had traded Chauncey Billups. So Ron Marshall didn't work out. Um, but that team had Kenny Anderson and, and Walker. You know, they had a lot of role players around it. It was Walter McCarty. It was um, Eric Williams. Uh, i trying to remember some of the other guys on that team. Uh, Yuri Welch was later. Um, I think Vitaly Vitopico might have been on that team. Uh, <laughs> a lot of names that, uh, that don't come to mind right now. Um, they also made the trade that year uh, for Tony Delk and Rodney Rogers to bring those two guys in. So they kind of – it was kind of a go-as-far-as-you-can – um, as quickly as you can, team, kind of play for the now moment. And when Danny Ainge came in, you know, he looked at that team over the next year and decided, um, you know, he was actually hired. A lot of people forget this. He was actually hired during the Eastern Conference Finals. So they're down two games to none to New Jersey the next year, and or the playoff series. It was either the finals or the – it wasn't the finals the next year. It was the semifinals the next year when they, they had beaten Indiana down to nothing. And then, uh, you know, Whit Grosak has a press conference that went out that they're hiring Danny Ainge. Uh, to take over the basketball operations from, uh, at that point, Chris Wallace. And I think Danny Ames looked at that team and kind of did similar to what he did with the, I, I would put that team in the same category a little bit, of the uh, Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder team of last year, where Danny Ames looked at it, says, I like these guys, but the ceiling is only so high on these guys, and if we're ever going to get to that next, next level, uh, we got to move some, some pieces around. And I think he saw Paul Pierce as a corner, cornerstone, but obviously he didn't see Antoine Walker quite the same way, and they made some trades, and one of which included Antoine Walker being traded in the late Rafe LaFrench trade. Um, and then they brought in uh, Doc Rivers. They kind of reassembled a little bit of that team together the, the, the year that they won the Atlantic Division uh, Championship. They brought Antoine Walker back to that team uh, for a playoff push because I think the owners wanted to be in the playoffs. They had Gary Payton on that team uh, and some other names on that team. And, and when that didn't work out, I think Danny Ainge started again to, to – look long-term and looked more at the um, potential down the road of a of either um, building around Paul Pierce in a very high draft pick if the Celtics weren't very good or hopefully uh, in vain of what actually happened, which was, you know, trading to put a couple of superstars around Paul Pierce and eventually he's able to do that uh, with Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. September 25th, 2000. 
Pierce and two friends arrived at a Boston nightclub. Minutes later, Pierce was fighting for his life. It just happened so fast, and I, and I looked up, and my, my clothes were ripped. I had blood uh, coming down my face. That's the first thing I remember, blood coming down my face, and I'm, like, wiping it. And I'm like, I'm seriously hurt. What role do you think that stabbing incident that he had within the first year or two of his career had on his career? Well, I think Paul Pierce did a lot, a lot of maturing over his career. Um, I was kind of surprised, actually, that he brought up the stabbing incident when we were talking to him Saturday night. I don't think he mentioned it Sunday anywhere. But, you know, Saturday night when they had the reception, uh, very close to where that incident took place, actually, uh, right in the theater district in Boston, um, you know, he brought it up, and he said he wasn't sure. You know, he had come from a bad neighborhood, a gang neighborhood in Los Angeles, and here he comes all over to Boston. Uh, he gets stabbed. He almost died. Um, and that's well-versed, uh, you know, that night that he was with Tony Petit. Um, and, you know, he was talking about, well, at that point, you start to think about what, what is your future in Boston, and is, is this a dangerous city for him, not only because he got stabbed in the nightclub, but because that was, that was kind of an unsolved crime. I mean, they, they could have... You know, Paul Pierce never really talked after that, and, and the people involved in that could have, um, there could have been retribution if there was a fear that he was going to talk. So there was a lot of that hanging around back then. And I think it was actually more, I, I think he, he remained kind of the same guy through that, I think. Obviously, he, you appreciate life more, and I'm sure he appreciated his, his family, and I think it was his girlfriend at the time who eventually became his wife. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but um, uh, I know he you know, talks about having more appreciation for his family and his mom kind of through that situation. Uh, I think it was actually later uh, on in his career when he kind of took that turn. Uh, if you remember the Indiana Pacers series, the one I was talking about in which um, he got thrown out of the game, he took off the, the jersey, was twirling the jersey around, wound up coming to the post-game press conference with the with the, the wrap around his head, pretending that he got that major injury from the elbow that he took from, <laughs> uh, from, the, from the foul that he took from, I think it was Lee Tinsley, I want to say, was, uh, was the player on the other end of that, and Paul Pierce wound up elbowing him. The South actually won that game. Antoine Walker won that game in Oakland. But um, in terms of, you know, he, he had a tarnished image coming out of that playoff. They wound up getting blown out in game seven of that series, and um, things weren't really training well. It was talked that uh, uh, Danny Ainge was was willing to trade Paul Pierce at that point in time. I believe uh, the trade, I may be a little off on this, but I believe the, the trade that was talked about at that point in time was Danny Ainge was trying to trade um, uh, Paul for a top pick to be able to draft Chris Paul. Uh, and then that didn't work out in the end, and Ainge stayed, and they decided that um, he was a guy that they were going to continue to build around. And it was really the relationship with him and Doc Rivers that I think um, – went a long way towards uh, that uh, maturation process with him. Like if you look at it now, you might, we would say that, you know, from an X and O's point of view, Brad Stevens is probably a better strict coach than Doc Rivers. But Doc Rivers had a way of connecting with players and veteran players, and he connected with Paul Pierce. And, um, you know, Doc Rivers yesterday was talking about, you know, how he got on him, and, you know, he wound up benching him for that game in the fourth quarter. They wound up losing the game and about how impressed he was when Paul Pierce came into his office a couple of days later. And I think I'd heard a version of this story in the past, but never the full version that Doc told yesterday that Paul came to him in his office and said, you know, I'm, I'm ready now. I'm, I'm ready to, to buy in. I'm ready to, to, to learn what it takes. I'm ready to have a role as opposed to just, you know, that was the NBA where it just everybody wanted to be a star. Everybody wanted to shoot a lot. Everyone was just the way that they uh, wanted to dress. 
and I think it was around then that Pierce um, decided that if he was going to be, if he was going to be able to do the things in the Celtics uniform that he wanted to do in terms of win a championship, in terms of having his number perhaps eventually raised to the rafters, you know, that would have been considered laughable back in 2005, even with the stats he was putting up. Um, you know, he had to he had to change some ways, and he said, um, you know, when he was talking to kind of addressed a lot of the people who were there to see him during the ceremony. You probably saw this yesterday when he was talking to Doc Rivers, the line that stood out to me and was kind of there were a lot of poignant moments where the kind of the pause moments or you know the tear moments, I guess. And, and one of them was, you know, I realized you didn't want me to do it your way; you wanted me to do it the right way, and I appreciated that you uh, kept enforce kept on me and kept enforcing me for, to do that. And, um, you know, that was a big part of it. Uh, that said, uh, by the end of 2007, he had gotten pretty tired of that situation. He had, he had been through the Ricky Davis team, and, um, you know, they looked like they were on the upswing, and then they had some young guys, and they really fell apart the next year when Paul had the stress reaction and in his foot, and he was, he was out for that 18-game losing streak. Um, and, uh, and Tony Allen was out for that too. And they went on that huge losing streak. And by the end of that season, you know, I think Paul had really kind of had enough and pretty much gave an ultimatum to Danny Ainge in the ownership. Listen, either you guys put some talent around me. And he wasn't talking about Yi Jiang Young, who was the uh, odds on favorite for the Celtics draft pick uh, when they didn't get one or two that year. I remember, um, in the 2007 season, there was a lot of talk about, you know, because the Celtics were going to get a top three, four, five pick, and, and who were they going to get? And, you know, there was a lot of excitement about the lottery because when you're a bad team, that's the only thing you have excited about is, mm-hmm. excited about is the lottery. And, um, and Pierce wanted no part of those conversations. You could not ask him about the lottery. He wasn't interested in it. He, wasn't, he wouldn't participate in, like, the lottery party that they had to find out that, in fact, they got the number five pick. And, and if you remember... Uh, the, kind of the face of that was Delonte West kind of be like, oh, no, we didn't get the pick. Uh, Paul Pierce didn't want anything to do with that. And it would have been interesting, I think, to, to, to see what would have happened if they had gotten one or two and they drafted Kevin Durant, whether Paul Pierce would have been in for that type of situation, whether he would have seen that Durant was such a talent that he wanted to stick with it, or whether he would have said, okay, you're going with a full youth movement. It's time for you to move on from me. Um, much the same way that Minnesota was preparing to move on from Kevin Garnett, and Seattle at the time was preparing to move on for Ray Allen. And obviously, uh, everything changed for Pierce when they made those two trades over the summer. It showed him that there was a commitment to winning in the franchise. And, and he, from that point on, was pretty much willing to do whatever it took on the court to make that whole situation work. It was no longer about him. It was about winning that championship. And there, there did seem to be a discernible effort by the team that year to save Pierce and save his status in Boston because at that point, even though the championship hadn't been won yet, Pierce was really Pierce at that point. Like He, he had a special status around the team in the city. What moment do you think turned Pierce from you know, being a great young player to being you know, Paul Pierce that we think of today? That's an interesting one because I would say, um, you know, because hmm. I think it kind of happened during the duration of the time where they actually didn't uh, win as much. I think he was already a mature player when they lost that 2005 series, when they lost that series to the Indiana Pacers, when they brought it back Antoine Walker. I think by then he was already, you know, being seen as one of the better players in the NBA. He kind of had that disastrous Team USA situation. Um, but I think by then it, it was kind of weird. It was actually during those downtimes afterwards that, you know, people around here really 
latched on to him and, and people who were interested in and probably your generation of people who were really interested in that young Celtics team, the Al Jefferson, Gerald Green, Kendrick Perkins, you know, Ryan Gomes, that Rajon Rondo, you know, that up and coming team. I think those people, you know, by that point people were kind of coming up on them. They didn't remember a Celtics team without Paul Pierce. So they had had Paul Pierce their entire career. And I think they had begun to build him up and, and then of course uh, you know, he was already an all star, he was already a star. He was a, a MVP top ten guy uh, the year that he played with Ricky Davis when they won 36 games. So he was already a star in, in the league by that point, and he was a star around here in terms of the basketball fans that existed uh, really wrapped their arms around Paul Pierce. And I think for a lot of it, it was the basketball fans around here had a relationship with Paul Pierce as a player a lot more than the general sports fan. I think in the general sports fan, you would say 2007, 2008 was when he finally – you know, got over that hump. But I think the basketball sports, uh, the, the basketball fan, the Celtics fan in the area, had a much more, had a much tighter relationship with Paul Pierce before that because he was their only star player at the time. You weren't shuffling out stars. It wasn't like this generation where one year it's Isaiah Thomas and the next year it's, it's Kyrie Irving and then you bring in Al Horford and you sign Gordon Hayward. For a while, it was really only Paul Pierce and then the two segments that um, Antoine Walker was here, he was the other guy in that scenario. Um, that's why I think that so many people felt such a connection to him uh, when it came to yesterday's ceremony, that, that you know, you got to remember people who are under, say, the age of 35 don't really, you know, they've heard of Larry Bird. They may have seen them in play when they, they were very young, but they didn't, you know, live and die with the 84 and the 86 and the 81 Celtics. They don't really remember those teams. And, and if you're in your early 30s, you don't remember those teams at all. Um, so Paul Pierce has been the Celtics for a great part of the lives of basketball fans here who are you know, up to 30 years old. It's certainly not the sight the Celtics and their fans want to see. Paul Pierce in a lot of pain, had to be carried off. Then they put him in the wheelchair as he's going back to the locker room. Obviously, in a lot of pain, can't walk off on his own power. Oh, uh, this is the sight that the Celtics fans want to see. And here the ovation as he comes hopping out of the tunnel. Rondo to Pierce, Pierce for three. Bang! Celtics back up by one. Outstanding read by Rondo. There to reject it. Rondo back to Pierce. Another three. Puts it in. Back-to-back three-pointers for Paul Pierce. There was a special connection you could feel in the stadium Sunday. That devotion to Pierce and among the fan base is strong. There does seem to be a gap, though, when it comes to Celtics fans' perception of Pierce and then other fans' perception of Pierce league-wide. Especially Sunday, you saw it. A lot of people tweeting, you know, trying to clown Pierce and stuff like that. There does seem to be a gap between the Celtics' vision of Paul Pierce and then the league-wide vision of Paul Pierce. Why do you think that is? Is it the fact that he did only win one championship over that time and that we're so ring-oriented when we look at the league nowadays? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, actually. Um, You know, I wasn't privy to that as much because I was following all the social media accounts. I know that, um, you know, when it comes to players around the league. I mean, I think they, people view things in, in tiers and you have the Michael Jordan tier and then you have the Kobe Bryant tier and you have the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird tier. And for a lot of people, things kind of, you know, anybody who's not involved in that is not worthy of, you know, somebody over the top accolades that would come with a, a post game retirement ceremony. You know, it's one thing to have your number retired, but 
there is a little bit of a difference between the halftime ceremony that like a Robert Parrish had or Cedric Maxwell had or that Kevin Garnett will likely have. Mm-hmm. The difference between that and having that whole post-game 45-minute um, situation and, and maybe some people thought they were over the top, but I don't think any many Boston sports fans thought it was over the top, and I certainly don't think anybody who's there was saying, you know, this is dragging on. This is dragging on too long. Why are we making such a big deal of this? Everybody there was uh, was quite enthralled and, and, and had a great time. It was a great um, ceremony. Uh, I think one of the things uh, I imagine most of the people who are listening slash watching this are, are people who have watched the ceremony and, and maybe some of whom were even there. But one of the great uh, parts of it, there were a lot of great parts of it, uh, the shots of Paul and his family throughout the game were great. Um, the fact that Kevin and Kevin Garnett were Sean Rondo and Doc Rivers were there was great. And also, um, and for Walker as well, but I, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was that five-minute tribute video that you can find online. It's on Celtics.com. Uh, if you look at their Twitter account or just look on their website, I'm sure it's on that as well, that uh, Sean Grandy wrote that Tommy Heinsohn narrated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just spectacular. It was, it was so well edited, put together. It was well written, and it really spoke to somebody um, who didn't parachute in for the finals or didn't just buy the, the Pierce media narrative that came out of some of his, his lesser moments with the Celtics or, or just something overly, you know, fluffy from, from what you remember him at the end of his career. It was really written from and, and shot from the perspective of the people who remember him coming out in Kansas as the number 10 pick, slipping in the draft, how upset he was um, because of that. Uh, becoming an early star, kind of uh, one of the things Walter McCarty said on Saturday was, you know, we needed somebody to reignite the Celtics in the city, and, and he turned out to be the one. Uh, really get the fan interest going again, and then, you know, all the way through the championship, and even some of the post-championship stuff, but even some of the, the post-Celtics stuff. You know, he came back, um, the emotion that he stirred uh, when he came back the first time with Brooklyn and the, the Thank You Paul um, video that was shown, uh, and then again when he came in with the Clippers that one final time, you know, Isaiah Thomas doing him the solid by letting him take the free shot over him. Uh, Isaiah Thomas' defensive jokes aside, but Isaiah Thomas <laughs> kind of did the token effort there. Um, Paul Pierce was, was able to get a shot off over the five foot nine Isaiah Thomas. That is fine. I remember that. Getting that and then going, <laughs> yeah, then going and, and kissing the, um, the logo, uh, the, the, um, the Shep, uh, Leprechaun logo at, at center court, just really encapsulating that all together and, and, and doing it in quite a, a nice wordsmith way by kind of repeating some of the same words and, and saying that, uh, you know, the, the spot on the banner was always his. It was just a matter of him being able to um, live up to it and finally achieve it. And obviously uh, he did as a 10-time All-Star and as a champion. So you seem to think Garnett will be up in the rafters as well. How long do you think it might be before that? Obviously an extra onus on Pierce getting up there quickly after retirement because of his uh, almost career-long length with the Celtics. When could we see uh, Garnett's five up there as well? That's an interesting one. I wonder what the what the dynamics of that are in terms of. Um, I know this. I'm pretty sure these Celtics intend to do it. I mean, they've kept his number out of circulation uh, for this long for a reason. Um, they actually kept number twenty out of circulation for a long time. I mean, I wouldn't been surprised if if it weren't for the fact that Gordon Hayward was number twenty and they kind of relented on that. They they intentionally. They, it's not an accident that nobody had 20 for that long a time. They went back to nine after just one or two years um, with Rondo. So there was, I don't, I don't think there was ever a, much of a thought that they were going to do uh, retire Rondo's number, but um, they kept five out of circulation. So they obviously have an idea to do it. I wonder if 
it is – I wonder if they would want to wait for Minnesota to do something first. And, and I don't think Garnett's career really ended with Minnesota the way he hoped it was going to be. I, thought, I think he thought he was going to go back and um, have a – just a, a – a better landing there. I think he felt kind of isolated when he was there, that he was there kind of the, the token Kevin Garnett as opposed to a guy who could actually contribute, a guy who was actually uh, respected. I think he, he thought that he was almost a, a mascot by the end of time there, and he kind of you know, retired, basically just didn't come to training camp and informed them that he was going to retire that way. It wasn't a, you know, he never went back and signed the, as far as I know, signed the one-day contract and did all the things that Paul did and, and you know, have the final press conference. He's it's interesting with Garnett, and this is kind of, a, I know, a side subject, but um, he seems to have more of a connection with Boston now when he comes back here than he did with Minnesota, even though he played with Minnesota for much longer. But I wonder if there's any type of um, give and take between the ownership groups in terms of it's only proper for Minnesota to do it first or whether Boston will say within the next couple of years, I guess, you know, listen, um, if you're not going to do it, we're not going to, we're going to do it because, you know, it'll be coming up on his Hall of Fame eligibility. And, and at the very least, I think it would happen right after he makes the Hall of Fame. But I, I think it could happen sooner. That's a guest spot right there, Scott Suso. Lots of good information in a short amount of time. I appreciate you taking time out of your night to be here with us tonight, Scott. Uh, no problem at all. Thanks for doing the show. I'm sure people will enjoy it. Alrighty, that is Scott Sousa of the Metro West Daily. You can follow him on Twitter and read his work over there as well. Thanks a lot to Scott Sousa and thanks a lot to SeatGeek as well. SeatGeek, I can't say enough about this app. It's on my phone and it has been for years because there are a number of ticket agencies out there that have apps and it is a nightmare scrolling through all those pages trying to navigate figure out what deal is right where you're sitting it's almost impossible and as great as SeatGeek is I think the best thing about it is that it's so easy to use you click on an event you've got the map right up in front of you there's these green dots that signify a great deal and there's red dots that instantly turn you away from bad deals to an event you can see row by row seat by seat where you're going to be sitting for these events it's it's really has changed my ticket buying experience i can say that 100 percent so SeatGeek is the way to go if you're going to be buying tickets it's convenient it's effective and the best part about it is that my listeners have a special deal today here on the banners broadcast yes if you listen to this show you are going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the app, and when you order your tickets, enter the promo code GARDENREPORT. There's still one more game before the All-Star break. Wednesday against the Clippers. Doc Rivers is back again. Big game before the Celtics are off for nine days. So if you can't get enough of basketball before it's gone, go on SeatGeek, and you're going to get $20 off your tickets to Celtics, Clippers, that's promo code GARDENREPORT, one word, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now, on to Mike Petrelia, our own at Celtics Blog and CLNS Media, who's going to take us inside the garden. If you can't buy tickets online, if you can't be there, then CLNS Media is the place to go. And Mike Petrelia is a big part of that effort, getting everything you need to know from inside the garden Sunday. Lucky man. Lucky man to be there. Let's talk to him now.
He was always a Celtic. That spot in the rafters, it was always his. But the road that brought him here, the road to become a legend, to become the truth, to become Paul Pierce, that's the good stuff. Because Celtics legends aren't born, they're made. Every number in the rafters has a story. Every unforgettable late night was born of an early morning of work, of sweat, and of hope. There were two Englewoods in the 1980s because outside the form, outside the mystical land of Magic and Kareem, showtime stopped and real life began. The life that derailed so many of those dreams, but not that smile. Not Paul Pierce. And when the blacktop became the wheat fields, the playground became the field house, the smile was still there. So how was the atmosphere? The Clippers game, it was about a year ago when he hit his final shot in Boston. I remember that Brooklyn game well when the Nets and then Garnett and Pierce came back for the first time. That was electric, as crazy as I've seen the Garden ever being there myself. Did the hype match the ticket price yesterday? It did. It really did. I thought, uh, the again, the anticipation of the event um, was something that was building for months and months and months. Uh, and uh, when you got inside the building yesterday, Bobby, you could feel it like an NBA Finals game. It felt that electric inside. And for, as the warm-ups began, you could hear the crowd kind of buzzing and uh, people talking to each other. You know, usually I gauge uh, the excitement level of a particular game by the number of conversations you see on court pregame. There must have been 50 different conversations uh, with players and coaches going on uh, courtside. And of course, you know, what added to it was, from my perspective anyway, was Doc Rivers uh, talking pregame about uh, 30, 45 minutes before tip-off, you know, really telling us what today, you know, what the day meant to him, why he took the day off between playing in Philadelphia and playing in Brooklyn on Monday night, what it meant for him to be there. And he said, look, this is something we talked about before we won the 2008 championship. I wasn't going to miss this for the world. I wanted to be there, and I knew that uh, given the way the the NBA schedule came out, you know, back uh, last summer, I was going to be there. It was something seeing him back in the press scrum. I think that more than anything from afar, watching on the CLNS Media YouTube page, you can too, it's up there now. Seeing Doc back in the scrum in front of the Celtics poster taking questions, like that just threw you right back to that age. It did. What what was it like for you uh, all these years after him leaving to see him back in that position again? It was great because... He was relaxed. He looked like he was back coaching the Boston Celtics, and I'm sure uh, the way his up-and-down Clippers have played this year and the Blake Griffin drama trading him away to the Pistons uh, and getting widely criticized for it, um, I'm sure he kind of wishes he would be back in Boston. He was actually asked 
um, you know, do you regret leaving? And he says, no, I don't regret leaving because, you know, there comes a time for everything to pass and the time for me was passed. But do I miss it? Absolutely. Um, do I cherish those days in Boston? Every single day. And he made that much very clear. He also made very much clear that he was going to enjoy the game courtside and watch a game for the first time in his NBA career. The beer. Just <laughs> with a beer um, and do it courtside with Rajon Rondo and Kevin Garnett to see the three of them watch a game uh, just as fans was, I thought, part of the, the the spectacle of it all on Sunday. And to watch Paul Pierce watching them enjoy it on the video board and then to have the camera uh, pan back to him, that was pretty special, too. Just to see the, the byplay between the two, par- you know, the two sides, Pierce and his family, and then, you know, uh, Doc, Rajan, and KG enjoying themselves, Antoine Walker as well. Um, To see them all enjoying um, and savoring the atmosphere was nice because in a situation like this, Bobby, too too often uh, we all get caught up in it. We don't savor the moment for what it is, and it's supposed to be a celebration. It's supposed to be fun, and you could see that they were definitely having fun. I love the fact that Pierce came over uh, during one timeout and took a picture with KG, Rondo, uh, and Doc, and KG put it up on his Twitter page. That was pretty cool. It was very cool to see those guys all out there again. Doc saying, too, with the beer, I'm going to yell at the refs. I'm going to boo LeBron. Uh, everyone was like, oh, you yell at the refs anyway every game. <laughs> So uh, when when did they all come out onto the floor? I thought it was very cool that they were courtside. And uh, at what point did they come out, and what was the crowd reaction like when they uh, entered? About 10 minutes before the game, Bobby, and the the crowd. It was that rising crescendo. You could tell everybody paying attention and going, ooh, ah, and then the clapping, and then the applause, and then the ovation. It builds like that. Uh, That's what Paul said this, you know, during a ceremony. That's what makes it so wonderful in Boston is that the crowd is unlike any other uh, in the NBA. And while that might be hyperbole to a lot of people around the NBA and a cause for a lot of eye roll, I think it's true. Um, You know, I come from the Midwest. I come from Cincinnati. And growing up, I saw a lot of different types of crowds for basketball, college basketball, um, the Reds, the Bengals. But when I came here and saw my first Celtics game and uncovered the first Celtics game, it's different from start to finish. And Pierce um, uh, saying during the ceremony, even when we were bad, really bad, the crowd was the loudest in the NBA. And that's kind of what I thought, you know, yesterday was also a celebration of and something Pierce really, I thought, did a great job of recognizing toward the end of his speech. There was that LeBron dynamic, too. Noticeable chirping between Doc, Pierce, uh, everyone on the sideline there, Garnett especially, too. The stare downs from LeBron during the game. We all know what the result of the game was on Sunday, and LeBron let it be known with them. What was that dynamic like, them going back and forth? Just like old times, it's funny to see LeBron still out there all these years later. Got to tell you, I think LeBron was inspired by that. Um, and certainly the way he played, LeBron played at a different level. Certainly having a rejuvenated roster full of young, tall, uh, stretch bigs and forwards really helps his cause. And the fact that Jordan Clarkson was hitting everything in sight uh, from beyond the arc, it was the perfect storm on Sunday for LeBron because he was inspired. He inspired his teammates. And the irony is, you would think it would have inspired the Celtics, but after the first quarter, they looked totally out of gas. And, you know, you wouldn't have expected that uh, on a day like yesterday. I mean, 
you know, the highlights for the Celtics had to be Kyrie going to the basket within the first 10 seconds for the layup, then Kyrie crossing over LeBron within the first, what, five minutes of the game, and the crowd exploding before he even raised up the jump shot. And then it went in. And then I thought, to me, that was the apex of the game for the Celtics. From that point on, it was all Cavaliers. It was all LeBron and the Cavaliers on Sunday, of course. Uh, Noticeably missing as we have talked about for years, Allen. Ray Allen now on the golf course, as Instagram later revealed during the uh, game and ceremonies. I doubt anyone talked about it out down there, but what is this whole dynamic like at this point? Why is there so much separation? Why does it feel like we're years away from that ever being rekindled? Because it's personal. And anytime some obvious slight occurs like that where or absence occurs where Ray Allen, part of the big three, uh, was not there uh, to celebrate one of the great Celtics of all time. And certainly Ray Allen had a vital, pivotal role in helping Paul Pierce win that NBA title in 08 and nearly doing it in 10. Obviously, KG did too, and Rondo did too. But Ray Allen served a huge role on that team. Um, The only thing you can take away from the fact that he wasn't there, um, that he is not playing anymore, is the fact that um, he would have felt very, very uncomfortable with Rajon Rondo there and with KG there and the way it all ended. And he probably felt, look, I don't want to take away uh, from Paul Pierce's day by having some unspoken tension between Rondo and KG. And, you know, you criticize Ray all you want for him. He should have been the bigger man. He should have been there, uh, put by, let bygones be bygones. But if Ray was that uncomfortable, then it's probably just as well he, he stayed away. As you said in the opener, there was a big onus on the Celtics organization to get this done quickly, less than a year after retirement. What, 34 hangs in the banners now. We all know the storylines between some of the great Celtics players ever and the role they played in the franchise's history. What would you say and what do you think the team feels like is Pierce's role in Celtics history and what is the most important attribute you think he contributed to the team in his time here? Uh Great scorer. Um, one of the most, I mean, it was Robert Parrish saying yesterday, this stunned me a little bit. Who's the better scorer, Paul Pierce or Larry Bird? He'd take Paul Pierce just as a pure scorer, mm-hmm. um, not as an overall player, not as a passer, you know, and not certainly as a rebounder or whatnot, even though Pierce was a terrific rebounder in his day. And um, But the thing about uh, Paul Pierce and his legacy is um, – how understated his intelligence factor was. And I thought Doc did a good job of bringing that up yesterday uh, on Sunday saying, look, Paul Pierce was a lot of things, but the thing he doesn't get credit for is how smart a player he was. He may have been the smartest player I ever coached. That's saying a lot. And, you know, I don't think um, Doc is very far off in that estimation. And, you know, it was Doc bringing up that play and, and others as well, Paul Pierce bringing up the play, the jump ball late in Game 7 of the 2008 Eastern Conference semifinals against the Cavaliers, you know, and uh, Paul Pierce realizing the Celtics weren't going to win the tip. So he went to the Cavaliers' side, stole the ball, 
uh, or you know, won the ball, won the tip, and the Celtics went on uh, to win that game in dramatic fashion, holding off the Cavaliers. That singular play, uh, instinctive play on the jump ball late in Game 7 of the 08 Finals is probably um, you know, the one play that people point to, that people that know and uh, played with Paul point to as the play that really sums up Paul's career. I do like that Doc brought that up, and he was really happy to let you know that he was going outside the box with that one. But it was. I mean, I didn't remember that one, and he brought it up, and it was, uh, it was very interesting to hear that story as well. Um, there was a lot of talk about Pierce, his number going up there. There's still one spot left on that banner. Do you think the next one that's going to go up there is Kevin Garnett at some point? It's either Kevin Garnett or Rajon Rondo, and I think it's going to be KG, uh, just because he he – overnight changed the culture of the Celtics and brought the intensity back that not even Paul Pierce on his own could bring to the fore. And I think Paul, uh, Kevin Garnett is the most beloved Celtic for as short a period of time as he was here as there has ever been. And he won a title. Um, And I think when you consider what KG meant to the culture of that Celtic era, I think he's going to probably wind up. First of all, he's a Hall of Fame player, um, and he made his Hall of Fame. He, he cemented his Hall of Fame credentials in Boston. When you throw all of that together in the mix, I think that uh, more than equates to a place up in the rafters. And it would give the Celtics another chance to celebrate uh, what was a great, great time uh, in Celtics glory. Uh, that you know, 2007, eight season through 2000. And, 11 and 12. Everyone's got their story from game six in 2008, what that night was like for them to be in the building that night. Were you there that night? In game I six? was. What was it like back then? <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to tell that. you, uh, Bobby, I'm going to tell you, it was a little anticlimactic just because the Lakers went so cold and the Celtics got so hot in the second quarter and the Lakers never responded after halftime. I was expecting uh, the Lakers to come out and make one final charge, maybe Kobe doing to the Celtics what Paul Pierce did to the Lakers in game four. I was kind of expecting that never materialized. And to see um, the Celtics literally run the Lakers off the court, it was a little you know, anticlimactic. You know, I would have liked to have seen a more dramatic, you know, I'm sure a lot of Celtics fans were, hey, it's, you know, I'm going to enjoy this. We're all going to savor this game six, finally beating Kobe and the Lakers, and we're putting the stake in our arch rival. We love it. But from a basketball purist point of view, from a journalist point of view, I was thinking, hmm, game six, game seven of the 84 finals, and, and the 85 finals, uh, but the 84 finals, I was hoping for some type of ending like that, uh, but it didn't materialize. And you just, it was a coronation, to answer your question, Bobby. The second half of that game six in 08 against the Lakers was a simple coronation of the clearly the best team in the NBA that year. Still can't get over the fact that I asked you the other day, did you cover the big three? And you're like, yeah, the tail end in 93. And I'm like, not that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, but I mean, you say big three to me, I, I still think of that iconic picture of the three players, Bird, McHale, and Parrish standing midcourt at the old garden. To me, that will forever be the big three. And, I, and, and no disrespect to Paul KG uh, and Ray. That image of those three Celtics players 
will forever be um, burned in my memory. That's uh, Mike Petrelia, who was in the house on Sunday and in the house for the old Big Three, who now all sit together in their banners. You can follow the banners broadcast every week on iTunes, Stitcher. Get it there when it drops. And I'm sure you'll hear plenty of tregs as we go into the second half of the season. All-Star break starts Wednesday after the Clippers game. Celtics need it badly. Nine days off coming for this team after the big loss to the Cavs on Sunday. Thanks for being here, Mike. Appreciate it. May I say one more thing, Bobby? Yes, absolutely. That is one dope hat. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Thank you. Bleep you. This is our way. Yes, loud. Stevens is pretty smart and knows what he's doing. That 3 and D roll. Go, it's a D-League. If I had uh, Antoine Walker's body, I'd be an (laughs) all-star. Reunion Arena in Dallas, where the Mavs and Lakers are playing tonight, was built in 1980. Now, you couldn't ask for a better facility. It's easily accessible, has all the comforts of a theater, and there isn't a bad seat in the house. But for some reason, there are those who prefer the Boston Garden, mostly those who wear Celtic green. What is so special about the Boston Garden, other than the fact that it's a 1,000 years old? Let's take a look. First of all, a garden, it's not. It's a train station, really. One flight up and you're on the fabled parquet floor. Now, before you get all misty-eyed about the parquet, take a closer look.